Today, we're going to talk about employee leave and PTO. As most of you probably know, this is a topic that can be tricky to manage. We'll talk more about this today because it's sort of always been tricky. I'm your host, Ryan McCoslin, and it's my job to help you understand and demystify human resources stuff facing small and medium-sized employers. And I know about this stuff because I happen to be an HR party of one. My employer, Bernie Portal, is bringing you this show based on our experience serving thousands of employers and their HR parties of one, or sometimes two or three, through our all-in-one HRIS, Bernie Portal. I've had a first row seat observing HR parties of one in action, and I've studied this deeply to tease out what works. Welcome to HR Party of One. How do you create a PTO policy that's fair? What are your legal obligations? How do you keep employees satisfied while still maintaining a productive and operational business? It's tough. And to cover all these questions, we'll have to first think about how we wound up with the concept of paid time off in the first place. Why are we paying employees for time out of the office? PTO evolved pretty substantially over about a 100-year period. In the mid-1800s, there wasn't even a standardized work week. So the idea of PTO would have been completely laughable. So let's start there. It's timeline time, where we give you a quick shot of history and sometimes crazy events that lead us to where HR is today. Many cultures around the world recognize a holy day without work. But the concept of a work week or a weekend hasn't been around for as long as you might think. In fact, did you know that Henry Ford is sometimes credited with inventing the weekend? And this story might be apocryphal, but side note, some say he did this so Americans might be more likely to buy cars for weekend road trips. The weekend as we know it has origins further back in industrial Britain. The Ford Motor Company was one of the first companies in the US to institute a five-day work week in 1914. Going back even further, U.S. labor groups started pushing for an official work week as early as 1866 to employers' disdain, instituting a period of push and pull between employer groups and labor groups that has arguably continued all the way up until today. In 1869, President Ulysses S. Grant created the eight-hour workday for federal workers, but it took much longer for this standard to reach the private sector. Throughout the coming decades, there were countless demonstrations and policy pushes to shorten what were then often 12-hour workdays or more. You may have heard of one such demonstration known as the Haymarket Affair in 1866, in which a bombing killed seven police officers and at least four civilians, and it wounded dozens of others. Throughout the early 20th century, other industries came to adopt a standardized work week, including railroad workers, manufacturers, printing companies, and others. Finally, in 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which created the first minimum wage of, wait for it, 25 cents per hour, and a 44-hour work week, which was revised two years later to what we know now as the 40-hour work week. So that's how we wound up paying employees for 40 hours worked, plus overtime, if necessary. But how do we get from there to paying for time not worked at all? Other countries pushed labor regulations beyond the U.S. standards, mandating paid vacation and other benefits. The U.K., France, Germany, and Spain get the most paid leave worldwide. But the U.S. has let the market employer discretion set the standard when it comes to paid leave. There's always been a recruitment and retention element to vacation, with employees generally considered more productive and satisfied with, you know, some time off. But at the same time, this little history lesson shows that there's always been tension when it comes to this topic. 
And in the decades that followed, employee leave has become increasingly complex and has evolved beyond the classic two weeks paid vacation into multiple categories of time off and ways to structure, track, and maintain PTO policies. You can imagine how this might have happened. Employees didn't want to take their vacation time for six days or the loss of a loved one. And you can imagine that some enterprising HR manager, you know, one of our kindred spirits, said, okay, enough is enough. Let's just call it paid time off, and you can take it as you like. And you, as in HR or business owners, have a lot of flexibility when it comes to creating those policies. That's because in the U.S., there are no federal requirements around paid leave. In fact, the only federal requirement around any kind of leave is the Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, of 1993. And it applies just to unpaid leave and only for certain employers. We'll quickly jump into your FMLA obligations in a minute. But to put a fine point on it, that's right, despite cultural standards and what might be considered some best practices, you're actually not required to provide your employees with any leave at all. And some employers take that to heart. I know a business owner who responds to PTO requests with, oh, so you want to get paid for not working? On the other end of the spectrum is unlimited PTO policies, which are slowly becoming more common. And then in the middle, there are a huge number of ways to structure categories like sick leave, vacation leave, bereavement, and so on. So here are some of the things that are bound to come up and some of the considerations you may have to make when it comes to employee leave. First, the federal requirement to consider is FMLA, the Family and Medical Leave Act. And it applies to companies with 50 or more employees, as well as all public agencies. Employees who've worked for their employer for at least 12 months or 1,250 hours over the last year are eligible for FMLA. And they're guaranteed 12 weeks of unpaid leave per year for the birth or adoption of a child, a serious medical condition, or to care for a family member with a serious health condition. Beyond that, the rest is really at your discretion. Many employers and employees alike mistakenly believe they're insured paid time off for things like voting, jury duty, parental leave, or even holidays. But that just isn't true. There are no paid time off regulations in the US. But you likely provide some regardless. It'd probably be pretty hard to hire and keep workers without a PTO policy. A recent survey of small and mid-sized companies showed that 20% of current employees were holding about 20 days or more of PTO. So what should you consider when building or auditing your PTO approach? You want to think first whether you're talking about creating PTO policies for salary or hourly employees. These are two entirely different PTO situations, and it's more or less impossible to have hourly employees on unlimited PTO. And this is due to the dynamics of overtime pay required for hourly employees. Salary employees, on the other hand, have no access to overtime pay, regardless of how much they work. And there's a trade-off there from a wage and PTO perspective. So should you provide categories of PTO like sick leave or vacation leave or an umbrella PTO category? What about special circumstances, like the ones we mentioned, jury duty, bereavement, or other situations? In general, you want your policies to be as simple as possible and as standardized as possible among different teams and managers. It may not always be possible or make sense to have one singular PTO policy across your organization, but it also will likely be administratively complicated to have too many. One way to streamline your operation is to use an HR software solution like Bernie Portal. It does provide advanced features like customizable PTO policies, automatic accrual calculations, PTO calendars, and it can be accessed anytime and anywhere with employee self-service. Check the link in the description for more on how Bernie Portal can help your organization. I use it 
It works. According to your recent PTO survey report, 28% of respondents not using a PTO system said they plan to adopt one in 2020. So if you haven't used one yet, you're in good company. One thing HR may be familiar with is how difficult it can be to draw the line when it comes to individual requests. You might allow a day of PTO for bereavement for immediate family, and then you have employees who don't have those kinds of family ties and who want to take it for the loss of a close friend or unrelated parental figure or even the death of a pet. How do you address these responses fairly? There are three considerations you'll want to make. First, consider the individual and the situation. What's fair to them? Next, consider HR's ability to actually administer the time requested. Is it possible? What's fair to HR? Finally, consider what's fair or just to your organization. And if you feel uncomfortable saying no to an individual, remember you may be saying yes to a better and more fair policy. This is a concept popularized by the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People author Stephen Covey. And, you know, quick plug for Stephen Covey, if you're not familiar with his timeless and global bestseller, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I highly recommend reading it. It's been foundational for me and for many of my colleagues. I'll leave a link to it in the description. It can be uncomfortable to tell an employee no, but remember that in the right context and with the right intent, it's really a deeper yes. For example, I said no to an employee who requested PTO for the day before Thanksgiving. This employee was an hourly worker who asked for PTO the week before the holiday because she found out her boyfriend was returning a day early from several months abroad. Now, she loved him. I get it. Love is powerful. But she also worked in a part of the business that was busiest in November and December. And for any Q4 PTO requests, you know, we, we said we required people on her team to request PTO at least a month in advance. It was hard to say no to her. Who says no to love? But I had a deeper yes because we thought through what's fair for the business. However, if you're receiving a lot of one-off PTO requests for special approval outside your policy, that might be a sign that your policy isn't competitive or in the best interest of your organization or employees. Remember that PTO is a component of the total compensation package, along with wages and benefits. And so PTO audits should be a regular component of HR's recruitment and retention efforts. When conducting a PTO audit, HR professionals should both evaluate market standards as well as internal adherence to the policy. If a significant number of managers are providing more PTO than the policy allows, well, this could be a signal that the overall policy needs to be upgraded and standardized. Now, if that's the case, how do you change a PTO policy? Ultimately, it can be a big shift, but you just have to do it. You have to get corporate buy-in and just communicate that to employees that beginning January 1st, PTO will operate differently. For more on building a great PTO policy, we've published a report called First Class PTO that addresses how small and mid-sized businesses across the country structure and manage PTO. You can access that by clicking the link in the description. At our organization, our position has been that it's easier to institute one umbrella PTO policy than to try to manage multiple categories of days. When an employee asks for bereavement leave, I say, absolutely, it looks like you have five days of PTO. It's allowed our team to take the time they need without a lot of administrative hassle on HR or the manager's side. And this is a trend in PTO policies that is expected to grow in the coming years. Again, for our company, while our non-exempt roles do have a PTO policy, our exempt employees don't technically get a set number of vacation or PTO days. If a team member needs time off, they arrange it with their superior or what we call accountability partners. 
For that, we usually require at least two weeks' notice. Overall, we believe that as long as the employee is getting their work done in the spirit of our overall principle of mutual respect, you know, we can avoid the hassle of tracking days. Of course, special considerations have to be made during our busiest time of year. And occasionally, PTO requests are denied. But overall, our employees like this policy as it puts the control and responsibility in their hands. And it turns out treating responsible adults like, well, responsible adults. And that goes over pretty well. So let's recap. Since the mid-1800s, labor regulation and PTOs evolved substantially. The 40-hour work week was born in the U.S. two years after Congress passed the Fair Labor Standard Act in 1938. As the century moved on, two weeks paid vacation became the standard in the U.S., while other countries pushed labor regulations even further. In 1993, Congress passed the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, which applies to companies with 50 or more employees, as well as all public agencies. It guarantees employees who have worked at least 12 months or 1,250 hours, receive 12 weeks of unpaid leave per year for things like childbirth, serious medical conditions, and caring for family members. However, FMLA only applies to unpaid leave, and there are, I repeat, no federal requirements for paid leave. This means the employer can set up their PTO policy any way they like. But remember, it's considered a part of the employee's overall compensation package, so it needs to be competitive with the market standards to be effective. It also needs to be as simple as possible, ideally. Now, when it comes to addressing individual employee requests for time off, consider these three things. First, the individual in the situation. Second, HR's ability to grant the time off. And third, ask if it's fair to the organization. It can be unpleasant having to deny PTO requests, but it may be what's best for the organization. However, if the employer is getting a ton of PTO requests outside the scope of the PTO policy, it may be time to revisit the policy to make sure it's still the best option for the company and the employees. If it's not, change it. Now here's your homework. I want to leave you with a few steps you can take to improve your PTO policy. Get out of the woods, take a bird's eye view at your PTO offerings, and compare them with what other companies in your field offer. A good way to find this is simply checking out their job postings or career pages. I'll also leave a link in the description to our own PTO survey report, which should shed some light on how small and mid-sized businesses across the country structure and manage PTO. Optimize it. Make sure your PTO approval and tracking process is efficient as possible. The best way to do this is with an advanced and easy to use HR software solution like Bernie Portal. And then get educated. To take it one step further, go to BernieU and check out our free course on the foundations of employee retention. It's been HRCI approved for recertification credit hours. Look, what was a great PTO policy 10 or even as few as five years ago may not be the best option for the present. And it may not be the best option for the future. So take some time to review your policy and make sure it works effectively for both the company and the employees. And hey, let us know in the comments if you have a unique PTO policy you found that works at your organization. As always, thanks for tuning in to HR Party of One. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in again next week as we tackle our next HR topic. Have a request for a topic? Email us, hrpartyofone at bernardhealth.com. That's hrpartyofone at bernardhealth.com. For more on how you can streamline your operations, go to BerniePortal.com. I'm Ryan McCoslin. Thanks for making this HR party of one a little less lonely. And remember, HR parties of one. Your work is as strategic as you make it.